All right, this morning we've made it. We've made it to the end of Jonah. Seems like the longest book in the Bible, doesn't it? Now that we've had to go through all of it. We're at the end of it. Fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. And this is, this is just where like, I, I find myself repeatedly saying, Jonah, calm down. Like, I'm, I'm like, feel like Taylor Swift over here. You need to calm down over and over again. All right, so this is where, we, this is where we've come so far with the, with the book of Jonah. Some people got the Taylor Swift reference. It's okay. This is where we are with the book of Jonah. So, brief recap over the past three chapters. Jonah, guy living in Israel um, around the time that the Assyrian Empire comes to thwart everybody. He receives this message from God. Go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim this message that I'm going to give to you. Jonah says, no, that's a really bad idea, God, because one, they might kill me, and two, I don't want them to be saved, and I know you might try to save them. And so Jonah runs to Tarshish. Yes, yes, we heard that word again this morning. Jonah runs to Tarshish, uh, trying to escape God, and ends up on a boat. A storm comes up at sea. All of the other people on the boat ask Jonah why this is happening. Jonah says, it's my fault. Throw me overboard and you'll be fine. They pick up Jonah right into the sea. And uh, Jonah thinks he's about to encounter uh, Sheol. He's about to be dragged to the underworld. Instead, God sends a fish to swallow up Jonah. And if, uh, if the trauma of being thrown into the sea wasn't enough, I imagine the trauma of being swallowed by a large fish was probably sent him overboard. Huh, get it? And anyways, he, uh, after three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the fish, prays to God and says, deliverance belongs to you, O Lord, you and you alone. And so the fish then upchucks Jonah onto dry land, and Jonah then receives the message from God once more, go to Nineveh, that great city, and deliver them a message that I'm about to send to you. Begrudgingly, Jonah hobbles off to Nineveh, goes about a third of the way into the city, says five words to them in Hebrew. Forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's only five words in Hebrew. Says five words, turns back out. Those five words cause a chain reaction throughout this, one of the largest cities on earth at the time that reaches all the way to the king and the king goes into a panic and says, everybody, no more eating or drinking. No more wearing normal clothes. You have to put on burlap, sackcloth, and cry out to a God that you've never heard of before, and maybe we'll be saved, because the stranger told us so. And they do it, and they turn from their evil ways, and God says, you're good. I'm going to spare you. And this is where our story, our narrative picks up this morning. But this was very displeasing to Jonah. I think that's an understatement. And he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, God, isn't this what I said? I knew this was going to happen. You did exactly what I said you would do. I know that you are far too kind and far too loving, and it's not fair to me. It's not fair. I knew you would do this. This is why I tried to run to Tarshish. And you spared these people anyway. What's going on? You were supposed to destroy them. Where's that angry, wrathful God that we've heard so much about? And God proposes a question. Simple question, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, in his temper tantrum, storms off, goes outside the city, and makes a booth for himself, of all things. And he sits there, waiting to see what would become of the city. 
So this tells me Jonah, Jonah thinks that Nineveh is going to screw up once more. He's gonna, they're, they're, they're just going to cause a big problem once more. And that time, God's going to turn around and just uh, obliterate them. And so he goes out to wait and see what will happen. And in that time, a most curious event happens. God appoints a bush to grow and cover up Jonah, provide him with some shade. And Jonah is happy about the bush. And then God appoints a worm, and the worm comes and eats away the bush, and Jonah is mad about the bush, because his shade is now gone. And so, Jonah was so faint that he asked that he might die, and he said to God, it is better for me to die than to live. And was like, Jonah, you need to calm down. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. And I'm just like, Jonah, you need to calm down. And so God tries to teach him a lesson. A lesson about the people of Nineveh. And so as we conclude our our narrative in the book of Jonah, I want to bring up a couple of questions. The first... Why does Jonah get so upset? Why does Jonah get so upset about a people that are saved, a people that are spared calamity? Last week we talked, maybe it's his sense of justice, right? We have this, we have this inherent sense of right and wrong, and that the good people are supposed to win, and the bad people are supposed to, you know, suffer punishment, get their just desserts and whatnot. And it doesn't happen. Is that why Jonah gets upset? I think it, it might be a contributing factor. But honestly, in my, my own unprofessional opinion, I think that it's a little more childish than that. I think that Jonah gets upset because he doesn't get his way. I think Jonah thinks he knows what's best for the world and for himself. And when he doesn't get his way, then he throws a temper tantrum. Right? That's, that's what happens whenever kids don't get their way sometimes. A little temper tantrum comes up. And Jonah thinks he knows what's best for the world, and don't we all? Don't we all think we know what's best for the world? That's why we have our beliefs and political ideologies and all of these things. We think we know what's best, and the other people don't know what's best, and so that's why we're going to stick to our side. And so he gets upset whenever he doesn't get his way. The second question What's the deal with this bush? It's a, it's, a, it's a very strange interjection in the story. There's a bush there one moment. God just like grows a bush and it covers Jonah. It's a pretty fast growing period if you ask me. And then all of a sudden God sends a worm to come and eat the bush. And I'm like that seems counterproductive, but okay. And so the bush withers and dies and Jonah gets upset. And I'm wondering is, if this is God's lesson to Jonah, that the bush is a symbol of human life. Here one moment and gone the next. A wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. I think that's how the Casting Crown song goes. That this bush is God trying to teach Jonah a lesson because God says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? 
And this is the second time that God has asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? The first time it was about Nineveh. The second time it's about the bush. And he says, is it right for you to get mad about the bush? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. Calm down. And God, God kind of goes into this lesson. And he says, you're concerned about the bush, which you did nothing for. You didn't plant the seed. You didn't water it. You didn't provide sunlight and nourishment and help it grow. You did nothing for it, and yet you're so concerned about a bush. God says, should I not be just as equally concerned about a city full of hundreds of thousands of people? We never get Jonah's response. God gets the last word in this story. But it's going to come back up. God's trying to teach Jonah a lesson. And, and like we've talked about before, Jonah, probably not a historical book, but a parable. And so in God trying to teach Jonah a lesson, God's trying to teach all of the readers of Jonah a lesson. A lesson which would echo throughout time. And the lesson is this. What is a human life worth? What is a human life worth? What is the value of a person? We did a fun experiment in a ninth grade chemistry class, I think. Is that when you take chemistry? And we, uh, we had to write out all of the major elements that, uh, that comprise the human body. And after writing out those elements, we had, then had to go research and figure out how much you could buy those elements for, uh, you know, at a grocery store. I can't remember how we found out all of these elements. And we had to put together this price list, and we found out that, that a human life, like the elements, if you were to buy the elements that made up a human life, it's like, you know, change. It's like $5, and I, I don't know, the $5.36 sticks in my mind, but maybe it's closer to $9. It's not a lot. It's not a lot to pay for the elements that comprise a human body. And so we kind of made this joke, ah, a person's only worth, you know, a couple of dollars. God's really trying to get Jonah to figure this out. What is a human life worth? For us, a person's value often depends on us knowing that person. For us... It's, it's much easier for us to say that a person we know really well is worth more to us than a person we don't know at all. A classic psychological experiment is putting a, if, putting a family member in danger and then putting a stranger in danger and then being asked, which one would you save? And, I mean, I don't know everybody's opinion, but the general consensus is you, you go after your family member, you save your family member. But it's a statement that says, well, our family member is worth more to us than the stranger. For human beings, a person's value often depends on us knowing them. But for God, who knows all intimately, human life is worth being saved. Human life is worth it. The entirety of human existence is a testament to this. From the very moment humanity takes a breath, God's every effort is to draw human beings back into the fold of love. From the very moment in which humanity starts taking steps, God is pursuing humanity, saying, come back home. 
saying, let me show you what love looks like. Saying, let me be here with you and for you. That's been the endeavor of God every step of the way. It's, it's the whole narrative of the Bible is over and over again, God saying, let me be here for you. Draw near to me and let me draw near to you. And humanity saying, nah, I'm good. And doing something else. For God, the God who knows all intimately, a human life is worth being saved. And so he starts teaching Jonah a lesson. A lesson in human worth. Because for Jonah, the only people worth saving are himself and his people. He thoroughly believes Nineveh and all of Assyria deserve absolute destruction. And when he doesn't get that, then he gets upset. But God is trying to teach Jonah a lesson saying, these are still people. And Jonah's like, but they're still the bad guys. They may be people, but they're still the bad guys. They're still the people who are causing all of the problems in the world. And God takes a very dramatic stance at the end of the book of Jonah. Verse 11, should I not, this is God speaking, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God takes a very important stance here. God says, God, God kind of removes the speech about good guys and bad guys. We talked about good guys and bad guys last week, right? And God, God removes that language and says, there aren't good guys and bad guys, there are just people. People trying to figure out what it means to live in this crazy world and sometimes getting it wrong. He says, Jonah, just like you need to learn a lesson, they also need to learn a lesson. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. They're confused people. They, they, they haven't matured to that point yet. And they need to learn this lesson as well. It's the same lesson which, you know, children have to learn uh, like pretty early on now. Especially if you have more than one. You know, starting out, a child, it's all about them. It's all about that child. I don't, I don't have a child personally, but I'm in, all of my friends are having kids and it's, it's causing an identity crisis for me, but I'm still, you know, with those kids and it's, and I, I love hanging out with their kids and everything. But it's funny to watch their development because kids are, are having to learn, uh, you know, after like a year of life, uh, what it means to not just be an individual, but to be a collective, to belong to more than just one. Kids have to start learning how to share early on, right? And you know, whenever, whenever they, kids are first learning to share, the temper tantrums come and they're like, no, this is still my toy and all this stuff. It's the same lesson that both Jonah and Nineveh are having to go through. They're having to learn that they're not the center of the world. They're having to learn that they're not the most important things on the face of the planet. That there are others out there. And that God's concern is for all of them. So, is Nineveh really the bad guy? God says, oh my gosh, there's a spider crawling on the microphone. It's gone. Sorry. That was weird. God says, God says, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? It's coming back. 
Just take a step back. And it correlates with another point in, in Scripture in which God doesn't associate good guys and bad guys and doesn't differentiate them. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus is being hung on the cross, is being crucified and utterly humiliated in front of masses of people, the people that he has been trying to be with for so long. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of the shame and the horrors that were done to Jesus, he cries out to God looking over these people and says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus differentiates between Jesus no longer differentiates between good guys and bad guys. There are only humanity. And humanity trying to figure this crazy world out together. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, I grew up in North Alabama, just outside of uh, Huntsville. I went to a high school called Bob Jones High School. It was a fantastic school to go to. It was also highly overcrowded. Um, for a time there, we were one of the largest schools in the state. We even ranked among the top 5% of high schools in the nation. It was a great school to, to be a part of. And one of the things that made it great, for at least for us students, was our principal. His name was Robbie Parker. And Robbie Parker had, uh, he was a very quirky guy. He had a very interesting personality, and everybody loved him. But he would just, he would just say some strange things in which you're like, I get what you're saying, but I don't know why you're saying it that way. And uh, one of, we called these things Parkerisms. And one of the things that he would say after, you know, after our Friday night football game, the next morning he'd come over the intercom and he'd say, uh, he'd say, friends, there's, some, there's a lesson that everybody has to learn at some point. You don't spit in the wind, you don't tug on Superman's cape, and you don't mess with the Bob Jones High School football squad. Because we won a lot. I'm proud of that. <laughs> but of those Parkerisms, the most unique one that came up all the time was that word at the end, squad. He called every group of people that had a connection with each other, squad. There was the football squad, the baseball squad, the basketball squad, the cheerleading squad, the band squad. The, uh, the, key, the key squad, not the key club, the key squad, I don't know, it, weird. And even the, even the teachers were the teaching squad. Everybody was a squad. And he eventually described what he meant by this word squad. He said, for me, a squad is a group of people who care for one another and work together for a common goal. That's what a squad is all about. A group of people who care for one another and work together for a common goal. And throughout the book of Jonah, the biggest lesson that this parable can teach us is that humanity is God's squad. Humanity is the group of people that God is trying to rally to care for one another and to work together for a common goal. Humanity is God's squad. There, isn't, there, aren't, there aren't good guys and bad guys there's not team one and team two, or A team and B team. It's all of us together. All of humanity just trying to figure out this crazy world the best we can. And the best way we can do that is together. And so the whole time, God is trying to get us to that place in which we recognize we need each other. In which we recognize we are our best selves when we work together. 
And so my question for us today is simply this. Are we willing to be on the same squad as God? And I want to pause really quick because it can, be, it can be easy for us to say, yeah, sure, yeah, that sounds good. I'll be on God's squad. That's, that sounds like something I want to do and also sounds like my email address from 2002. I'll be on God's squad. But consider the implications of being on God's squad. Being on God's squad means there is no us and them anymore. Being on God's squad means... We don't separate between the rich and the poor, the white and the black. The people who go to Spring Hill Avenue United Methodist Church and the people, you know, pick any other church around here. We don't differentiate anymore. There's not us and them. It's just all of us together. It's all of humanity trying to figure it out. That's what God's squad means. To be humanity collective people who care for one another and work together for a common goal, namely human flourishing. And so, are we willing to be on the same squad as God? Because believe you me, God can work some incredible stuff through a group of people who work together. And so let's take that with us today, and let us pray this morning. Holy God, we have much to learn, much to grow, and we need your guidance. May these lessons which you hand to us not fall on closed minds, but rather be received with warmth and welcome that we might implement change in our own life that promotes human flourishing, that promotes community, that declares we are a people who care for one another and are willing to work together for a common goal. And in that vein, we lift up to you this morning our brothers and sisters, especially those who've been impacted by Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas and along the East Coast and up into Canada. And we lift them up to you in our prayers and ask for a recovery and healing. But even more, that we might also be a people with boldness enough to step in and take action and bring recovery and relief ourselves. We pray also for our brothers and sisters across the globe, as well as those right next door to us, the people whom we do not know, the people we know really well, for we all have something that we are struggling with or dealing with. And we all have joys that we wish to lift up. And so we lift up to you all these things, these prayers both spoken and unspoken in your perfect and holy name. As we pray together also that prayer, which you taught your disciples to pray as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 
Amen.